On today's episode, we're doing a Q&A with Coach Campbell. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. We are halfway through Lent, which means that I have been stuck into writing this book uh, pretty solidly now for the last two weeks. And prior to that was just um, not real, like just typing away with no real deadlines or goals, but now it's, it's time to grind. And, you know, most of my time outside of working is now spent, you know, committed to this book, but I'm grinding through the next week and a half should be most of, most of the rough draft should be done. Then I'm just like tinkering with some of the um, graphics or some of the images in the book and just tying up a few loose ends here and there. And so, yeah, another week and a half of grinding and most of it should be done while well, the first draft, the rough draft anyway, send it on to some editors and some um, podcast listeners who have agreed to jump on board. And I'm extremely excited. I have essentially wrote 20 chapters and each chapter on my Google Docs anyway is about you know 10 to 12 pages long. And it's it's coming together really, really nicely. It's containing like some really relevant studies that I like to refer to. It's got examples of me as a runner, examples of some of my clients that I've worked with and um, the revelations they've had on a particular topic that I'm discussing. And once that goes to the editors, I'm then working on about, I think, another 10 chapters, which would be all injury-specific stuff. So part one is going to be reducing risk of injury. Part two is going to be increasing your running performance safely, 10 chapters for each of those, And then I'll start getting to work on part three, which is the injury specific stuff. And then the book's done. (laughs) There's probably like, I get to do the fun stuff, which is come up with the title, the, the cover art and like working on the ebook and then how it gets published and the hard covers and like all that, all that kind of fun stuff, turning it into an actual product and yeah, thanks for all your well wishes. I know a lot of people have reached out and said, I'm excited to, eventually get this book and start reading this book. And yeah, I'm, I'm riding the wave with all of you listeners. Uh, today we have uh, Campbell Maffett, who is a running coach. I have his qualifications and stuff here. He has uh, been an athlete 40 plus years. He's been coaching 15 plus years. He's got a marathon. Uh, his marathon PB is two hours, 32 minutes. 
Uh, he's got qualifications in um, coaching with recreational runners, middle and long distance, and also triathlons. He is a coach of the Love the Run group, and I'll leave the link to that, and a free kids run group um, called Kids Run Club, which I'll include the links in the show notes as well for that if you want to learn more. And Campbell actually reached out to me um, via email and said, you know, these Q&As that you're doing, um, they're great, love them. It'd be nice to get like a coaching perspective. And I totally agree. I haven't been coaching for 15 plus years like Campbell has. And these Q&As, the questions that do come in on the Q&As, I just take my perspective and what I know. But, you know, someone might have other ideas, different ideas, and I'm happy to have someone on to expand my kind of views on things and help learn a few things. And so we did something a bit different. We've I've gone through to past Q&A episodes where um, some certain questions have been asked, which I think might suit Campbell really well and questions I kind of want to learn more about, get a different perspective on. So we talk about uh, having a speed goal while also having a longer, say, marathon goal at the same time. We talk about factoring in cross-training into your 80-20 intensity distribution. We talk about what exercises will increase uphill running. We talk about what are the advantages and disadvantages of shorter um, distance running more frequently or longer distance running less often in terms of you know injury risk and preparing for a marathon. And so very happy we did this. Uh, Campbell's a wealth of knowledge and it was great to have him on. Campbell, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brody. Thanks, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, as they say. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so. and first-time guest to impart the wisdom to our listeners, and I'm excited to dive in today, and I really appreciate you reaching out and um, suggesting that we come on and organize this, and yeah, looking forward to how. Looking forward to your responses to a few of these questions. Um, do you mind if we just dive straight in? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I'll just preface this by saying um, I'm probably going to say it depends a lot, um, cool. <laughs> which you know that here a lot. Um, yeah, because it does depend. But you know, hopefully, we can give some some answers that really are helpful and practical that people can take away straight away. Yeah, I've been a guest on way too many running podcasts, and the the amount of times that I say it depends is like it just means <laughs> that sometimes I think that the it depends is actually an answer in itself because mm. if you're so well versed in all the stuff and you know mm. all the different possibilities and there can't possibly be one answer, mm. it's an answer in yourself. And then we can maybe just explore a few different options and why does it depend um, might be a good, good way to take it. Sure. Totally. Let's get into it. So the first one I wanted to dive into was one a little bit more recently from episode 200. And the question was, how do you plan a speed goal as an example, like a 5k speed goal and a marathon goal at the same time? Is it possible to do both? So what's your insights? What are your thoughts on this particular question? Well, the short answer is yes, it's very possible. Um, And to back that up, there's a very good book published maybe six or eight years ago about the top 10 marathoners in us from Australia, both men and women, and it profiled them and their training and, and their competition leading up to what was ultimately their, their best marathon. And it's the two things that come out from that. One is the how many of them, of the 20 runners, followed the same type of program, which is what you might call the Australian model. Um, and also how many of them ran a 5K PB in the six weeks or so leading up to the marathon. So... 
So there you are, there's evidence. And those times from those runners <clears throat> still stack up, particularly on the men's side. You've got people like Morningetti, De Costello, um, Brad Camp, <clears throat> um, so, uh, gosh, uh, Pat Carroll and other, Nick Harrison, who who re- all pretty much ran PBs that close before a marathon. So they've shown that you can do it. Um, but it can, it depends on the type of training, training approach that you take. Um, so what to, and the models have, t- have changed over time. So what was the Australian model that Monaghetti followed and De Costello followed has changed a little bit in time and it's not sort of so much in vogue these days. But, but the key points that they were doing is they were touching all, the, all their speeds within a week. So they were doing a long run. But they're also doing very fast, high-intensity work because special specificity is really important. And you won't expect again any magic on race day if in a 5K if you've just been doing long, slow runs for a marathon. And vice versa, if you've just been doing short, fast sessions for a 5K, you won't necessarily expect to run a good marathon. Um, then if you want to try and achieve both, you need to be doing trying to incorporate both types of training within the same week um, as a short answer. So that might be for people maybe doing a midweek session where you, which is more 5K specific. Um, and then a weekend session, which is a, a longer session, which is more um, tailored for a marathon. And from that, you'll get a very good outcome in, in, in both races. It might not be as good as if you were wholly focused and wholly dedicated to one of those goals, but it would certainly set you up in a good place to, to run both well at both of those and then subsequently, if you, if you decided you wanted to focus more on one or the other, you're in a great place to then launch into one of those types of um, training programs. I kind of get the the saying that like a rising tide like rises all ships. And when you're talking about those um, athletes that had their best 5K as soon as when they had their like top performance in a marathon, um, what, what might that look like if because you suggested that, you know, it can carry over. And if you have a, a good 5k time, it might lead into a, a strong marathon performance. But then you also said that if you get really specific at a marathon, then that might look a bit different. But how might that look different if like, you know, the short interval sessions does carry over to a good marathon performance? Sure. No, that's a um, very good question. So if you were training for a 5K, um, typically your mileage would be a little bit would be a bit lower because you don't want to carry that fatigue from doing long sessions and big miles um, to carry over into your specific sessions, which are by necessity a lot faster. Um, you'll be doing faster running, you know, two times, maybe three times a week, depending on on your capabilities and your background and your durability, etc. So. Um, and that's where marathon training is tiring. It's hard work. You do a lot of miles, you get tired, and it's really hard to be fresh for the, for the hard sessions. Um, and so that's where, if you are, that's where the probably the big difference is for a five k specifically is that the overall volume is different, so that you can achieve the levels of performance and the training outcomes and effects that you want in those key sessions. Conversely, if you're training for a marathon. Um, you don't need to be running at that at that same speed that you would if you're training for a 5K. Yes, you do want to train at different intensities, but you might not want to do quite the volume of training at those fast intensities, um, which which also is very fatiguing. If you're doing fast 200 meter reps or 400 meter reps or, or so on, that makes you tired for the 
for the volume of training that you want to do as a marathon. So your your overall volume is a bit lower, but uh, sorry, volume is a bit higher, but your intensity is a little bit lower as a marathon runner. So um, if you are trying to do both of them, you need to sort of find where's the middle ground for you that is going to give you the necessary volume to get through a marathon um, and the, the the speed that you want for a, for a 5K. Um, there is a pretty direct relationship between the amount of running you do and your marathon performance. And that's been shown over and over again. The people who do the most running pretty much have the best marathon times up to a point. You know, the, you can overtrain, you can do too much running, but when they find that sweet spot of how much they can do, the maximal sustainable amount, that's where the people achieve their best marathon performances. Maximal sustainable amounts are pretty nice way an elegant way of putting it uh and that explain that really nicely saying that there you know if you're training for a marathon you probably should have some intensity in there and if you're training for a 5k maybe there is some like slower mileage in there as well because both of those extremes would like cause a little bit too much fatigue and not enough variety but depending on your goals there might be a little bit of a leeway between one or the other and it's it's up to you to try and find the balance between the two. Um, you did mention, let's just say if someone is training for a marathon and they also want to get that, that 5K speed and so that they're working on both at the same time, do you have any advice of where that middle ground is? Like how many like speed sessions per week there might be um, or are we going back to the, it depends? Oh, well, there's a lot of ways to achieve an outcome, of course. Um, uh, and it does depend, but there's a lot of ways to approach it. So that model I described of <clears throat> that Simone Getty followed, for example, he would do three sessions a week that were ranging between roughly 15 minutes through to maybe 25 minutes. Um, so that's really not much fast running in a week for a guy who's running two, two um, marathons in two hours and eight minutes and, and top of the world. Um but he was doing a lot of volume. So he was doing over sort of 200 kilometers a week overall running um, within within the week and finish, fitting in these three sh- short but very high intensity, high intensity sessions. So you can see there he's achieving both by doing high volumes of training, um, but also some high intensity, high intensity sessions. Um, and some of his longer sessions were, they were, they were you know, probably a middle, middle zone, if you like. Um, but... By by that the whole combination of all those elements, he was getting the the training benefit that he needed from a volume and intensity. But for but that's hard to achieve. That's hard to sustain. To to aim to do high volumes of training, um, which for people with normal lives, um, it's really hard to do because it's so fatiguing. So for as a general approach, what I'd suggest would be maybe to consider having two sessions a week. So two key sessions where you do some. You know, harder running um, and having two so you set you split them out sort of basically half halfway within the week and then on a weekend um, and typically people have a bit less time during the week so they'll do their their shorter faster session which is 5k specific which could range anywhere from 400 meter reps through to 1k reps but doing work which is specific to 5ks um, in terms of hitting the paces that you're wanting for 5ks and a little bit faster as well um, but that would be the session you do during the week. And that could have an overall volume of hard running within there in the range of four to six kilometers. So you might do a session of five by a K, or you might do 
10 by 400 or you do maybe four times 1500 meters things like that which which are targeted around your 5k pace and then on a weekend would be where you do your long run um, and within this long run it's not just a long easy run you'd include some running in there which is targeted towards your marathon target pace or goal pace um, so and that would you you'd be care, you'd want to be careful how you incorporate that because you don't want to do too much of that goal marathon pace work because that's that's quite fatiguing especially within a long run and you don't want to be replicating the stress of a marathon every weekend um, so you might do it maybe every second weekend one weekend you might do just a long easy run to get time on your feet up to you know two and a half hours or so and then every second weekend you might do a long run that's only maybe two hours but within that you'd incorporate you know some good chunks of marathon pace training so within a four-week cycle you're getting maybe three to four good 5k sessions during the week and then two two long easy runs and two long runs with some marathon specific work in them so and that would be in many ways a, a really ideal approach for someone with those um, split goal or those dual goals of 5k marathon just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know i have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge this is one email per day for five days learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury the sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Yeah, I could also see like potentially the error of someone looking at, okay, this is the training that I need to do for a, a speed goal and this is also the training I need to do for a marathon. They kind of just combine the two and try and find mm. like um, that. And like you say, if someone's training for a really fast speed goal that's quite fatiguing like operating at such a fast speed all the time but also the marathon side is also quite fatiguing mm -hmm. with the amount of miles and it, so if someone's trying that and trying to find where their balance is and they find themselves like you know fatigued or constantly sore um you know i think at the peak part of training i think you know fatigue might be a little bit more um acceptable but is there kind of guidelines around if they've just started out and they're noticing that those particular signs and symptoms if they are doing too much yeah look that's a good one because um fitness is cumulative and so is fatigue so you might get through one week feeling pretty good you might get through two weeks thinking yeah i'm going okay but then by the third week and fourth week you just hit a wall and if not for um um, injury then certainly fatigue will catch up to you and um, the risk with with these with with training is that you leave your best running on the training track um, so as a as approach for that i i always say to people hasten slowly um, so really work up to it start start conservatively and work up to it um, i have an old coach of mine who was a swimming coach from my triathlon days um, used to say when things are going well be conservative so do a bit less than you think you could do is a better approach to take. So you might start by doing just a short set. Start with that general structure and that general approach um, with that differing focus for the midweek and weekend sessions. Um, but um, yeah, build up slowly. So your midweek session might only be a short, might only be, you might only do three by one mile, three, three times a kilometre or two times a kilometre. And your long run on the weekend might only be an hour and a half. And then slowly build up, so you're you're building your progression as you go um, until you get to what's your sweet spot of volume. Um, as a general rule, I'm a more of a fan of people finding a 
a volume that they can sustain pretty much week in, week out, um, rather than thinking they've got to build, 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 build up to you know time when, when they start their taper and they find they're so damn tired, they actually don't recover before their key race and because they're, they're so tired. But if they get to a point where they can, their bars on Strava are just dead flat then and they're still getting the sessions done and achieving the, the training that they want to, even if it might be maybe 5 or 10 or 20% less than they might be capable of, that's a far better, more consistent and repeatable approach than, than thinking I'm going to build up to a peak and then find themselves just too tired and their quality of, of training has gone down um, and they're just in a hole. So you don't want to try and do more. You want to do the same thing but do it better. Yeah. Well said. And I really like um, that advice from your coach saying when things are going well, be conservative because I've seen too many and like the listeners know if they're a part of that boom bust cycle, as soon as things go well, they just overdo it. They run out the gates and said, oh, the, the very moment that they think I'm, I'm ready to get back into training, they just overdo it and they find themselves back where they were, you yeah. know, yeah. And their yep. injury displays up. Classic boom bust cycle. Yeah, I've got a I've got a strong belief that because oh, I've had so many calf injuries that runners on their if they guide themselves they always start running about five days too soon. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well said. I more, think so. More or less. Yeah, uh, we've got the next question here. It actually came from episode one hundred and eighty four, the Q and A um, episode. When factoring in the eighty twenty intensity rule. Can low intensity cross training, hiking, walking be factored into that eighty percent of um, low intensity? I should probably explain first the the eighty twenty rule uh, sort of factors in or indicates that eighty percent of your overall training volume should be spent at low intensity, um, leaving that twenty remaining twenty percent to push into those upper intensities. Um, so, does it just apply to running, or can other mm -hmm cross-training factors and other events, um, you know, make up a part of that 80%. What do you think? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, and 80-20 is perhaps a new um, sort of, not buzzword, but new approach that people are um, grabbing onto um, to guide their training. Um, but 80-20 is it's really, it's a guide, it's not a prescription, um, is a really important thing to note. And that only came about retrospectively through an analysis of elite training. So, it's remarkable how over time um, coaches have worked out and found out the best ways for people to train and then scientists have come along and done analysis and, and actually tried to give some scientific um, parameters and boundaries for why these things work where coaches will tell you all along, I know it works because it's worked. You know, they, they don't need any convincing. They don't need a scientist to validate their, you know, the people winning gold medals. So an 80-20 is the same thing. It was an analysis by Stephen Seiler um, around the training of cross-country skiers. And he found that, sure enough, you know, 80% of their training was a, about was in his lower zone and 20% was higher. So um, now that's sort of kind of become a de facto rule that people are saying, I must follow this 80-20, where, where really it's more of a guideline than a prescription. So that's I'll say that kind of at the outset because um, people are saying, oh, I'm following an 80-20 program. Well, you should be anyway. And even if you, and like these elite runners found naturally, um, they, they just can't really do any more than 20%. Um, and if you try to, you're perhaps overreaching and you're maybe setting yourself up for trouble. So, But it is nonetheless a very good thing to remind yourself of to just to do a little stock take sometimes. Am I doing a bit too much? You know, is 
am I being am I being conservative enough when things are going well? <laughs> so coming back to that point we said before, um, but applying it to this particular question, um, which sort of prompts the, the follow up question is what how low is too low intensity, um, and what you know what 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 intensity actually qualifies as training? Um, and some people would say, well, if I'm walking around the street, that's still training because it's making me tired. But I mean that might be all it's doing is making you tired and and too tired for your subsequent sessions. So I think there is a dif- differentiation between what is worthwhile training and what is training that's just activity that's making you tired. Um, and I think things it's a bit like um, saying, I'm going to lift light weights to get me stronger when you know we know um, both through people's practice and what, what science has backed us up is to say that you lift weights, lift light weights, you know, 50 reps of that, it might make you tired, but it's not going to make you really that much stronger. So in the same way, doing a lot of walking might make you tired, but might not actually really improve your running or your, or your, or your other training really appreciably, other than making you feel tired and feeling a bit better that you've burnt some energy, which people sometimes tend to associate with being you know, a productive outcome from their training time. Um, so in, I guess by saying that, I am saying that there is an intensity that's a bit too low. Um, there's a lot of training zone models, whether it's a three zone model or five or seven zone. Um, in my running group, we use a yellow, orange, and red zone. The yellow is the, is the low intensity. And, that, and if you're to give it some specific definition, I'd probably say it starts at maybe 50 to 60% of maximum heart rate. So you are actually are walking. So I'd be thinking if you're doing an exercise that's, and your heart rate's less than 100 as an arbitrary number, it's probably... It's not really training. It's just you're 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 just playing around, really. Um, um, hiking, but then something like hiking can have some benefits. If you're hiking over over some high tough hills, then it can have some benefits in terms of you know, muscular endurance, especially the downhills um, and the eccentric loading and the eccentric and the adaptation that comes from that. Um, and having said that, I'm a really big fan of using deliberate you know uh, power walking hill reps. As part of rehab for injuries, particularly lower lower limb ones, where you're getting a lot of the benefits of running, but without the, the dynamic loading that that running incorporates includes within it. Um, so I'm going in a, in a bit of a circle here, but I to answer this particular question, I'd be saying that no, that doesn't factor into the 80%. If you're just doing some you know some light level cross training, riding around the bikes with your kids to the to wherever. Um, or even going for a nice social ride, or hiking, or walking even. Um, I think those things just just make you tired without having any real benefit. Yeah, I'm sort of trying to apply or come up with some, some guidelines. It seems like, you know, that low intensity that is a part of that 80% should be like a deliberate training focused, mm. um, you know, deliberate benefit to the the goals and the performances and like the balance that you set out it shouldn't really be like the incidental or any other exercise that it is you're incidentally doing throughout the week it should have that that key focus in mind mm. yeah and you could say that you know, the the healthy guidelines from the government even say that if walking's good but doing something that gets you a bit a little bit puffed a little bit out of breath is where you start to get the benefits for your general health and you could apply the same thing here. If it's not, if you're doing something hiking or whatever, and you're not out of breath, you're not really getting the benefits that you might hope to be. Um, so you can take a lead from 
from those those guidelines, which are for the broad population, not just for the athletic population. Mm. And I think it might actually just take some reflection as well, because the idea around the 80, 20% rule, even though it's just a general guideline, the idea is that it's meant to design, it's designed to help you like have higher training volumes and kind of have that nice polarity so that you can build up volume safely Mm. with it mainly being low intensity, Mm. but then also stimulate the body and have those upper intensities so it can like train your body in different ways and help you perform. And so maybe just as a hypothetical, if someone is factoring in their incidental cross training, their hiking, their walking into that 80%, and then, you know, they're applying that 20% with high intensity running and they find themselves like sore, like not really performing, not really, um, you know, fatigued. And when you take away all those incidental exercises from that 80%, you're actually probably more like 50, 50 instead of that 80, 20, when it comes to your actual running and the body is telling you that it's maybe the balance is a bit off. So maybe it is worth just factoring some things in, not factoring other things in, but then just reflecting and seeing how your body's responding um, based on the rules that you've set yourself. Cause like you mm. say, there's just a general guideline mm. and it's all just about finding the right balance for you and seeing the, the performance benefits and the, the feel of it um, as an outcome. Mm. And that perhaps a, a really good thing about the 80, 20 rule is for runners who maybe they might run three times a week and two of those sessions a week, they go and meet up with their local running group and they do a hard session. And then the third run, they might go and run by themselves, but they go out and you know run at a pretty pretty steady effort. Um, so if you then consider that out of their three runs, two thirds of them are hard sessions, and the other one is a pretty pretty moderate session. So think well, where's your where's your foundation that you're that you're building this high intensity work on? Um, and that's really important. The the analogy to a house is so appropriate that you need to feel a strong base. In order to, to build a high, you know, grand grand building on top of that, and so the eighty twenty is a reminder to to not forget about that base, um, and that um, brings people a lot of people undone. And think of it in a simple way that and that twenty percent could be maybe if you use a three zone model, you know, yellow, orange, red. Eighty percent is yellow, maybe fifteen percent is orange, and only five percent is red. So if you're running for one hundred minutes a week, an hour forty, um, that means you're only doing 20 minutes at, at a particularly harder effort, which is not much. So you almost need to um, earn the right to do hard training. And you, do, you earn that right by building out your base and by doing a bit more um, so, that, you're, so that, that, that 20% becomes a bigger amount. And that's not a hard and fast 20%. You know, it'll, it'll, there's variations to that. It needs to take into account what else you're doing, your background. You know, for triathletes in running, now, it doesn't really apply because they're doing swimming and bike riding as well. And there's, there's, so that the equation doesn't fit quite as neatly for them. Um, so it's 80-20 you know, with an asterisk beside it. But certainly it's a reminder for to, to not ignore the base and the foundation that you need to have in order to sustain yourself to do harder running. Otherwise, you know, your house is going to topple over because the foundation is just not there. Yeah, I agree. And there are some recreational runners who've just got involved in running without, you know, doing any research and just, you know, found themselves just enjoying running and just going around the park a couple of times a week. And then, you know, you talk to them about their running or maybe an injury that they've had and 
you know, they're trying to get PBs every single time. Mm -hmm. And it's just because they just don't know any different. They think that's Mm -hmm. running. And Mm -hmm. for them, um, it might've started off like that and been fun, but then, you know, several injuries down the road and they're still adopting that same Mm -hmm. philosophy. That's when that 80, 20 ratio can be really Mm -hmm. profound, really beneficial for them. But um, yeah, for some others, it might not be that important. Maybe they've already found the balance for themselves and um, worked out that what the, the correct ratio. Yeah, that's right. Next one. Let's the the other question I decided to include came from episode 163. What exercises will help increase uphill running, especially for hills that are over a kilometer long? Okay, so when I say exercises, I'm assuming they just mean general training. What will, what will help? But, um, and you could split this into two parts. So for for running and what supplementary work you can do. So. If it's running and you're doing hills over a kilometer, I'm guessing you have perhaps it's a kind of a trail type of race, but regardless whether it's trail or road, um, that's a long hill to be <laughs> doing a kilometer. Um, and look, the way to get better at running hills is to run hills. <laughs> really, there's no, there's no magic bullet. There's no shortcuts to it. Um, and specificity, again, to run well over hills longer than a kilometer, as best you can, you want to include some training over hills more than a kilometer. Um, and a good way to think about it is like if you're training for a flat race is that you do a mix of efforts and durations of your of your hard sessions um, and take the same approach to, to running hills so you might do some short hills some medium hills and some long hills at different intensities um, and that could be short hills of you know I call those maybe up to 30 seconds 40 seconds thereabouts medium hills of one to two minutes thereabouts and long hills of you know, two to four minutes or, or longer um, or if you're going out on a long run on um, in some hills just running over hilly terrain and finding some hills that are two or three kilometers long there's some um, certainly around Melbourne there's some great hills in the Dandenongs you need to run to get to them um, but if you can't do that just doing them over and over so you're getting that volume of training on the uphills is, is what you need to incorporate um, but at the same time not doing all your training on hills because um, as good as as good as hills are, you can have too much of a good thing, and too many hills can just it just might stunt your running because hill running is hard work, um, and if every session is both in high intensity and has a high high muscular load from running up hills, it's just gonna it's gonna feel different, and I just don't think that's a good approach to take is to make all your runs in the hills, um, and then. If you're running in hills, then another really big consideration is the downhill as well because running in hills is not just about going up them, it's about coming down. And if you're bombing down a hill fast, then you're, you're setting yourself up for um, a lot of DOMS and eccentric muscle loading and, and, the, and the associated DOMS and performance impact that that has. I've certainly felt that myself in some, some hard trail running events where early in the race you go down really hard and by late in the race, you're really sore and everything hurts and you just can't run as well. So you need to condition yourself for the run downhill running as well as the uphill running. So, so in general, from the running point of view, do a mix of running on hills. Um, you might do some, some road hills. You might do some trail hills with, with some technical terrain as well to practice that skill if that's the type of event that you're aiming for. So again, specificity, but you know, doing a mix of them. From a supplementary exercise and weight training point of view, um, 
I'm certainly a huge advocate of weight training just as part of training, not as an add-on, um, not just for hills, but for, for everybody, for everyday running. Um, and in that sense, there's really, there's no particular difference in the focus that you'd have for if you're running a hilly course than you would maybe if you're not running a hilly course. Maybe the only thing you might start to do, might do a little bit more of is um, um, some eccentric loading um, by doing you know, drop jumps or just um, some plyometric work as well um, because you want to really prepare yourself for the, for the eccentric effort that, that hill, hill running involves. But otherwise, really, your strength program would be not much different to, to what it would be if you, weren't, if you were running just a flat course. I think, you know, when you're dealing with the uphill component of running, if it's too abrupt, like you're looking at all the propulsion style, um, your calf, your Achilles, like everything that has to produce force and get you up over that hill is um, the demands can be quite high and it can be a lot higher than running flat. And so people need to kind of appreciate that, respect that, and then make sure their training's according Mm -hmm. so that, you know, if you wanted to run fast, you wouldn't just run fast for every run you'd make sure there's that balance. Um, mm. The same thing would have to go for the the hills and then totally agree. As soon as you start answering that question, I wrote down on my paper, like the downhill component and you answered mm. it perfectly mm. because people rarely appreciate like the ground reaction force, the, how much it accentuates when you thud yourself down mm. a hill. And it's it's those spikes in load that can contribute to a lot of different injuries. Like ITVs are... Um, and knee pain can be one that really attributes to those high loads. But like you also said, the eccentric component, just your muscles trying to hold everything in place mm. as you're speeding down that hill, which is where, like you say, all that, that muscle soreness comes from. Yeah. And it you, you need to be strong. You need to be really strong to be able to tolerate those and it takes mm. time, takes patience and a pretty diligent, um, well-structured training program. Mm. Something else I'd add as well is that running hills it takes some skill and the skill in, particularly in terms of pacing, so and to practice, um, and it's quite hard to develop that without practicing. Basically, um, to know what pace and what effort is sustainable over over a hill. Um, you know, your nat- natural reaction of people is to go hard into the bottom of the hill, and then by the top of it, they're crawling um, over the top. Um, whereas a well-paced hill would be, you know, yes, it's going to be harder as you go, but you want to still be able to run strongly over the crest of the hill. Um, and not wanting to stop and have a walk and catch your breath at the top. You want to be able to run to the top and run over the top of the hill because if you're in a competitive situation, you can gain a lot on other people who have made that mistake and who who really fade over the top of the hill and starting to either on the flat or descending down, you can gain a lot of time on them if you've paced yourself well because you, you, you'll have more energy and you'll be able to do that because you haven't, you know... Um, blown yourself up on the way up the hill yeah and i guess that takes experience like you say it's a skill that you need to work on but also the experience of knowing different gradients you know there might be a gradient where you have to approach it a bit more conservatively or a gradient where you think you can maintain a pace for that duration um and i guess with the downhill as well the pacing because it might get to a certain duration where you know if you let yourself go it kind of gets um you sort of get caught up with it and you start like uncontrollably running at a certain speed and pace um which yeah it takes experience and takes a bit more um trial and error to work out those gradients and have a bit more awareness around that 
Yeah. And there's tools to do that. Um, heart rate, mm, heart rate has a lag effect. Um, perhaps the best tool, if you were looking for a tool to help you, would be a power meter. Um, I, I run with a power meter, and I find it quite helpful. Um, it's really, it's really enlightening. Actually, when you go up a hill, just how much your your power does go up, um, and how easy it is to really go too high. Um, and so it really takes some practice and some discipline to 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 observe that number and realize actually I need to need to back it off more, knowing that it's going to have a payoff further up the hill. Yeah. So no matter what the gradient, you try and aim for the same amount of power. Well, you give yourself some leeway. You, you allow yourself some. So uh, to, you will it will go higher, but you give yourself a cap. So mm. I'm not going to go above x x wattage, which might be you know a certain gap above what your 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 baseline wattage is. Yeah, and um, is that like a, a foot pod connected to your watch or something? Yeah, that's right. I use one particularly. It's called Stride, and it's a tiny little foot pod. It weighs next to nothing. Um, it's regarded as sort of the gold standard. There's a few other. Um, tools that do the same thing um, and it does connect to your watch so you just look down on your watch and you can change the display that it gives you um, and with with the information that it provides um, to give you real-time feedback on on how you on the and what on your wattage and the power meter the running power meter is a measure of your sorry is a measure of your physiological expenditure it's not a mechanical power meter like a, on a bike um, but it's a pretty good approximation for 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 the power that you're that you need and certainly certainly a power the power that you're expending which is perhaps more important yeah i had nathan fenton on the the podcast or might have been about 12 months ago now talking all about the power Mm. using power meters and like the the useful measures you can with that and that um that was quite insightful i learned a lot with that particular episode Mm. let's get let's move on we've got one last question to get through so episode well from episode 161 what are the advantages and disadvantages of running short distances more often versus running longer distance less often for injury risk and for marathon preparation there's a few things in there um you know where do you want to start yeah that's a um Good question. They're all good questions, of course. Uh, <laughs> everyone's got good questions. So I think refer back to what we talked about earlier about sort of training approaches and the relationship between volume and marathon performance up to a point. But for in general, um, I think you're far better off by doing um, freak, frequent runs of short duration than fewer runs of long duration, which is kind of what this person is asking. So your your goal for a marathon is is to have durability um, of your fitness and um, sustainability of your of your performance, um, and that comes just through time on your feet. So, so training volume is really a measure of, you know, in partly most people will measure it through um, number of kilometers run per week, but it's really time on feet. And so, I would say, so generally the the approach is. If you're running, say, 30 kilometers a week and you're doing, you're better off doing um, five runs of six kilometers than three runs of 10 kilometers um, in, as a general approach. So, or if you're doing the model that we talked about earlier, where you're doing a midweek hard session and a weekend long session, um, that's two, two runs a week. There's five other days. Um, don't think that you're running, you don't need to run any on the other days. So, but doing a short little run on each of those days just gives your body that continuous um, movement and practice of and 
and effect of, of actually running. Um, that could be very slow and very low intensity, although not hiking, like we talked about before. Um, but yeah, aiming for, for frequency, short runs, not so frequent runs of short duration, which could might only be 20 minutes some days. Um, but at least it's getting you going, getting you out the door, getting um, some, some stimulation of training, um, and particularly so that it prepares you for the key sessions because they're the ones that really give you the fitness benefit. These short runs are little fillers between them and you don't want the short, short runs to fatigue you for the key sessions that you're aiming for. Um, so yeah, it allows you to do something rather than nothing, which, which if you can um, withstand that and, and get through that, then that you're going to have better training outcome than by doing fewer runs yeah um, a long duration and with the marathon preparation in consideration it's kind of like you say just more time on feet we know that if you head to a marathon with a bigger base with a bigger weekly mileage then your likelihood of outperforming yourself is is higher um so you're just creating more days for that time on feet Mm. to accumulate that overall weekly mileage from a injury risk point of view um i often think of it as you know we we want our body to adapt as a runner we want our body to stimulate itself like you mentioned the the stimulus of training before and just to keep in mind for like a lot of tendons for particularly the tendons and the bones if you have this repetitive action where you're striking the ground um constantly it gets very bored of that stimulus if you do it over and over even after a couple of minutes it gets very bored it's like okay we're used to this particular stimulus um we're we're not necessarily needing to adapt which is why um say bones they very much love change of direction and like you know keeping things uh, like different keeping the variety very high but straight at like if you even into a few minutes of running the body becomes bored yes it is challenging for the cardiovascular system that's totally different but for for bones and ligaments, it gets bored very quickly. But the next day, if you do it again, it's like, oh, this is uh, this is almost new again for them. They have a very short-term memory and they can just say, oh, yeah, let me get used to this. And training more days just gives you more opportunities mm. for the body to get excited and hit that adaptation zone over and over and over again. So you <clears throat> essentially adapt quicker compared to if you were to do it for two days longer duration where the body can get quite bored and like yeah really over this and you only have essentially two short windows per week to adapt Mm. as opposed to you know more of those days Mm -hmm. would you agree with that yeah totally um and there's ways of getting more time on your feet um something another thing i'm a fan of for for runners that and not for runners but for some particular runners particularly those training for a marathon is doing a walk run approach during their training so um it allows you in a long run to, to maybe run for two hours instead of an hour and a half by incorporating some strategic walk breaks, which might be on a routine of run for nine minutes, walk for one minute on repeating cycle. Um, because it gives, just gives your body and your mind and everything just a little break. Um, and if that allows you to extend the time on your feet, then that's, that's good. Um, and you can do the same thing with your midweek runs as well. So if you're having an easy run um, and you're, you're tired, just walk for a minute. Just take a break. Walk for a minute. You know, often you might get stuck at a traffic light and have to stop for a minute anyway. So, you know, walking for a minute is being a bit more proactive about about it. It keeps you moving. Um, and what you find certainly over a long run is it really has negligible effect on your pace. 
compared to if you ran the whole way and slowing down later on in the run. Because um, if this helps you to prevent the slowdown, it's, it's been worthwhile. So there's the little ways of just trying to achieve the consistency and the training volume that you're looking for. Um, short, frequent runs, doing walk breaks, um, other things along those lines is a good way to, to get that time on your feet that you're really looking for. Yeah. Well said, well said with all of these questions. And I'm glad we did this. I'm glad we got your expertise and like a different sort of angle from it because you can tell from the extensive years of being a running coach, you have a particular um, philosophy and insight that I, I don't. So it's always good that we can collaborate and sort mm -hmm. of run ideas off each other. Um, so I want to thank you for coming on. I know you said before we started recording that you, you love teaching and you also love learning and those, those two components shine very much in this interview. So yeah, I'm glad um, we did this. I hope we can do it again in the near future and thanks for coming on. Thanks very much, Brody. Been to it to talk to you. Um, and hopefully, yeah, it'd be great to do it again. So thank you. And keep up the good work. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons, who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based, long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.